We are going to open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 11, continuing our study through the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, our brother Dave here is coming around with Bibles. Keep it up so he can see. He'll get one to you. If you do not own a Bible, we would love to make this Bible a gift to you. Uh, so you could, if you could, though, just let us know uh, after service that you needed a Bible and you're going to take that one home. And as long as you're going to read it, you can keep it. Um, but let us know so we can replenish it. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, continuing our study in the book of Genesis uh, and, and continuing to look at really this whole perfect plan that God had from the beginning. Uh, and that perfect plan is for redemption. We've been seeing that unfold. We've seen the mercy of God even in his judgment. We see the mercy of God in having recently just studied the flood and how God has destroyed the whole world with a flood. But then last week, focusing on the promise of God that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. Now that is essential information going into chapter 11. Okay, chapter 10 was a lot of genealogy, um, the the descendants of Noah and, and leading us up into now chapter 11. But in chapter nine, we, we looked at the promises. We looked at uh, that promise that God brought the rainbow. God promised he would not destroy the earth with a flood again. Remember that as we begin to get into chapter 11 tonight. Uh, in beginning here, of course, in verse one, it says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Of course, this is, this is talking about a oneness that is an earthly oneness, but it, it, it makes perfect sense at this point. These descendants of Noah uh, all had descended from one man, all had descended from Adam at the beginning. Then God destroyed the world, and then through Noah, repopulation happens through Noah's family. And so it makes perfect sense that all had one language. There was one language that, that could be known at this point, but more specifically, what this is pointing us to is the idea of one race, one tongue, and even as we get further into this chapter, one religion. Uh, there was an attempt at great unity here that we're gonna see unfold before us. And so with this, it's one language, it's one speech. It is complete agreement in in their, even their ideology. It's, one, it's, it's agreement in word, it's agreement in dialect, and it's agreement in ideology altogether. And so verse two, and they, it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they had found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. They journeyed from the east, came to Shinar. This is a place that is known at, to be Babylon. So in that place is where we're seeing now, uh, we see from here now a lot of other corruption, a lot of other world religion that starts right here with Babylon, with the Tower of Babel that we'll get into tonight. But it, the, the first point of it is that they journeyed from the east and they found a plain and they dwelt there. They came together when God had told them to be fruitful and multiply. God told them to scatter, to disperse, and to populate the earth. And what, what are they doing now? They're coming together in their so-called unity, in their so-called ideology of how they're going to make the world a better place. Isn't this what goes on? Isn't this what has gone on throughout history ever since? People try to come together in the same ideology to make the world a better place. But this is against God's mission. God's mission was to inhabit the earth and to scatter with godly people. This was an act of rebellion as they came together. Verse three. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. We're gonna see four times that the text says here, let us. 
The first says, come, let us. I already said there's this idea of them coming together and they are calling each other to come. And this is, this is a direct slapping, you know, pushing God's hand away, so to speak. As God has his hand on the people and says, here's what I want you to do, they're like, no. Kind of like a, kind of like a toddler who's just like, no, leave me alone. I've got this. And that's the idea that these people had. That's the idea that the, that the people came together and they say, come, let us. Now, if we look throughout these first 10, 11 chapters of Genesis, we see other times that it says, let us, and God says, let us make man in our image, right? God had a perfect plan. Let us make man in our image. And God desired to do that. Man messed it up. And now here's man saying, we don't need God. Let us create bricks. Now, there's significance here to this idea of bricks. You might think it's just brick. They're just trying to build something. But here's what they're trying to do. As they say, bake it thoroughly and make them as hard as they can be so that these bricks could withstand anything is the idea. We bake the bricks thoroughly. We make them super hard so they could withstand anything, right? This was man's attempt. At what does it say there? They had bricks for stone. This was man's attempt at stone. Stone is truly, it's, you can't break it, right? Brick, you could break. You could go at it with a hammer and you could hit it one time and you're gonna see some stuff fall from it. You go to stone, you're gonna be there a long time before you start to see anything happen to it, right? I mean, you just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And in that day especially, what, I mean, stone could withstand anything. But they're trying to create their own stone. They're trying to create bricks that would be hard enough to withstand anything and take the place of what God builds with. Because that's what God does. God builds with stone. God commands to be built with stone beyond this. Rebellion in the heart of man led them to create their own version of stone. And we know that eventually and ultimately it's Jesus Christ who is the chief cornerstone. See, the Bible's all connected. There's, there's no, it's not just by chance that we know Jesus to be the chief cornerstone. And that the Tower of Babel, they try to build this city with their man-made stone. These bricks that would crumble. But it's rebellion in the heart of man that created their own version. God in his perfect plan for redemption, gave Jesus the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. This is man's attempt at playing God. And these bricks were made as well to be waterproof with the, the, uh, the asphalt, as it says there. It was like a slime, a waterproof slime. Like a, and it, it, almost like a tar used to hold the bricks together. The same tar that would have been used on the, on the, the basket that Moses' mother had put together and placed in the water to float down the Nile, right? And so this is, a, this is the idea here that they made waterproof bricks to build their city, to build their tower. Why? because they had forgotten and or forsaken the promise of God that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. Maybe they didn't believe the promise of God. But here they are taking matters into their own hands and saying, we are not going to get destroyed by a flood again. We are going to make bricks and we're gonna build a city and a tower out of these bricks that would be so, so hard to take down. They would be waterproof. So when the water comes, when the flood comes, we're ready. But they forgot the promise of God. Listen. Listen. Don't forget this. 
Don't forget the promises of God, first of all. Because when we forget and or forsake the promise of God, it leads us to taking matters into our own hands and making counterfeit versions of God's perfect plan. Our bricks are counterfeit versions of what God uses. The stone. They will fall apart. Bricks are made of clay. Clay will break. It will fall apart. We continue on. And they said, again, number two, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Again, number two, come, let us. Let us do this. And not now they've said, first of all, let us make bricks. And they're gonna make bricks to try to take the place of stone. They're gonna make bricks to try to have this powerful foundation, this powerful built thing that will never crumble, that will never get washed away in a flood. But now they say, even in more inward and self-focused, let us build ourselves. And this building ourselves is a building up of themselves. And this building themselves is a building for themselves. And what they are saying directly here is we don't need God. Remember it was God who commanded Noah to build the ark. And Noah obeyed. He walked in obedience and God laid it all out for him. He gave him the specific blueprints, the specific materials, the specific plan that would lead to redemption. But here they are saying, no, we don't need God's materials. We're going to make bricks. We don't need God's plan. We're going to build our own city and our own tower. We don't need God. That was the perspective of the people rebelling and pushing away the hand of God, which was his perfect plan. But again, man had forgotten or forsaken God's promise that he would never destroy because now here they are with their waterproof bricks building a waterproof city and a waterproof tower. A city to demonstrate political unity and to, of course, endure the floodwaters, a tower to demonstrate religious unity and to rise up above the floodwaters. So they thought. But we can't forget the promise of God. That's why when I started, I said, don't forget that. Chapter nine, the promise of God, he would never destroy the earth with the flood again. There's so many promises that God gives that we forget. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what do we do? Surround ourselves with all the comforts that we could possibly fill our lives with so that we don't actually need God to comfort us. Right? Is it any different than the Tower of Babel? We're just building our own little towers of Babels all over the place having our own self-sufficiency. And what we're doing is the same thing that they were doing here. We are trying to become the Lord of our own lives. We are trying to replace God and even make materials in our lives that would be the counterfeit version of what God would use. It's all gonna fail. But in this, their city, their tower, political unity, religious unity. And it says that the top would be in the heavens, right? Uh, we're in verse four, whose top is in the heavens. This is not a translating specifically to a, a tower that would reach the heavens. It, of course, is pointing to a high tower. And, and this is oftentimes the perspective that is given. is like, oh, they wanted to, they thought they could build a tower that would reach heaven, that they could reach God. That wasn't quite the idea. Now, there, there's a decent application there for us, that there's a tower that they thought they could build so tall, so high, that it would be the, the pinnacle 
of all advancement of technology of the day and architecture of the day and and everything that they had to offer and the bricks that were waterproof and all of this, it all came together to make this amazing tower in their terms. But it's better translated to say that they built a tower with the heavens on top. And yes, again, there's this idea that man was in many ways, trying to reach God or replace God and to prove that they have power within themselves. But this is more so pointing us actually to the idea of the zodiac signs that their whole religious system was based on. This is their tower. This is where they would be focused on. The the astrology was the centerpiece of their religion. And so... The bottom line is that in no way whatsoever was God on their mind because they were trying to take the place of God. Their power and their ability and their effort, they were trying to take the place of God. But then further, they're now creating religion that is about the stars. And so much of the, of the religion of the Babylonians came from astrology or the zodiac signs. And this, of course, specifically would point us to the end times altogether with the idea of one world religion that is not focused on God. More and more all the time in religion today, it's taking God out of the equation. I just recently heard uh, a story about a, a clergy group, not a pastor's group, but a clergy group locally here in New Jersey, that in, the, in one of their recent meetings came together and said, oh, hey, we need to agree that in our discussion, in our reference to God, it needs to be gender neutral, right? I mean, that's, that actually happened. I heard that actually, testimony of that from two people now. Freehold, right here, down the road, okay? So the reality is this. God is being taken out of religion. God is, is continually being explained away out of religion. And that's exactly what was taking place here in the Tower of Babel or in this, in, within these people, in this city that they were building. We don't need God. We're going to have a religion that is not based on God, but is actually all about what we can do together. And look at the tower that we built and then the focus of this tower, we can, we can point to the stars and the astrology. Not, not using even, I mean, look, we can enjoy the stars, We look up and we're amazed, right? You ever been to a planetarium show? We should be amazed because we know the God who spoke it all into existence. And there's so many galaxies. And we talked about this when we did Genesis chapter one. And we looked at what God spoke into existence and that we are simply just a speck in this whole universe that God created with a word. And yet he sent his son here. to give us redemption. And he loves each one of us individually. And who are we? What what is this? We're seemingly so insignificant, but clearly not to God. Because he had a perfect plan. Man keeps messing up that plan. He will fulfill it. He's proven it time and time again, and he'll prove it again. But modern... Religious ideology is more about unity than it is about God. However, this was not unity. And it's actually none of it is unity. We just talked about it on Sunday morning in John 17. When Jesus prays for unity, he's not praying for uniformity. And that is exactly what this was, was uniformity. One 
tongue, one religion, one world governing body. It's everybody just did the same thing. They all had one mission and one purpose. But it wasn't a good purpose. Uniformity is all about human kingdom building. People saying, look at what we can accomplish if we come together. These are some of the things that we are being fed today in the year 2021. And we think that at its, you know, it, 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 originally it sounds good, right? But doesn't the devil do exactly that? He baits us with things that sound good. I mean, if it was just clearly wicked, and or you know, you have you have like the light and the darkness, and it was so separate from each other, and you're like, oh no, the devil's really bad, and everything he does is really bad. No, he's cunning. Look at what he did with Eve in the garden. He deceived her. Because what he gave her was very close to truth. We need to be careful with the things that seem very close to the truth. And so the idea of unity, we think, of course, is wonderful. Jesus prayed for unity. This wasn't unity. This is uniformity. What's going on, what the world is calling for today is not unity, it's uniformity. People saying, look at what we can accomplish if we just, that's the word, right? Come together. God says, go. Jesus said, go make disciples. Not come make disciples. Go. This is after the resurrection. He said, your job is to go. Even at this point, he said, go, be fruitful, multiply. What do they do? They come together. What is he gonna do? He's going to scatter them because he's sovereign, because that's what needed to be done. God said disperse, and he said, look what I can do with obedience. Look what I can do with diversity and a call to true unity. This was all a form of brainwashing that was going on in the society. The idea of a, of a utopian society here that people had bought into, it's a lie. Perfection is a lie on this earth, but everybody's striving for it. Everybody thinks they can attain it somehow. Listen, there is studies being done right now that people are trying to attain eternal life. Scientific studies of people trying to attain eternal life. Guess what's coming, guys? Judgment. People trying to play the role of God it's not gonna work out. This is all a form of brainwashing and don't buy into it. We've seen it happen at various times throughout history. People buying into a so-called unity but it's actually uniformity. But again, it points us forward to, to the end times where there is a required uniformity of this one world government, one world religion. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. So they continue, right? So not only do they say, let us make bricks, they say, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Then they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Man, this just got, went from bad to worse because there is no other name than Jesus, right? We, we just proclaimed it in worship tonight. Jesus, nothing else but Jesus. There is no other name, but now they just went from bad to worse, man. They, they have forsaken not only the hand of God, but now they have forsaken, and they've already forsaken the promise of God, but now they have forsaken the name of God, which we have talked about before. We talked about it on Sunday morning. When we talk about the name of God, it is talking about the fullness of God, 
his character, his heart, his love, all of who God is. And so now they have forsaken the name of God and say, let us, let us make for ourselves a name that we would take the place of the fullness, that what we have accomplished would take the place of the fullness of God. Let us make a name, let us make a reputation for ourselves to glorify humanity rather than God and to bind humanity together when God says to scatter. This is direct disobedience and rebellion. Verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. As the Lord came down to see, I I just feel like there's a big uh uh-oh that should be here in the text. But the Lord came down to see, uh uh-oh. Right, like when God was walking in the garden, he was looking for Adam and Eve, and they're like, oh no. But the people weren't hiding, were they? The Lord came to see, and what we see, that the Lord came to judge what he had seen. He knew what was going on. He didn't have to ask. He didn't have to come and see, and oh, what's going on over here? Nice city you guys built. He knew exactly what was going on, and he came to judge the wickedness that had abounded in the form of pride and idolatry that they and their accomplishments had taken the place of God. Verse six, and the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they uh, propose to do will be withheld from them. First of all, in this word indeed, this is God recognizing that they had accomplished something. It wasn't good, but they accomplished something. Indeed, they are one. Indeed, they have one language. Indeed, they have uniformity. Indeed, they have created a city. Indeed, they have created a tower. There's a recognition here. But then that recognition is him saying, and this is what they've done? What could have been done if they had true unity? And he's saying, but look at what they did instead. When man comes together, it's not usually over good things unless it's Christ at the center. And that's why Jesus prayed for our unity that would be through him and about him and about the cross and the resurrection. They have... The, you know, God is recognizing that people are one in ways, in language, and there, there's no diversity in any way. They have one race, one tongue, one purpose. But this was, like we said before, very much a cult-like society that they had created with the occult of astrology-focused religion at the center of it and the uniformity of society. It's kind of like, you get a picture, some of these creepy movies that are out there, I don't know, like Hunger Games or something, or like there's just this weird society going on. This is the idea of what was taking place. It's just this perspective of, man, everybody that had just been brainwashed and following after this one religion, one language, one purpose, all one race. It's not what God desired. And we get caught up in the idea that we all need to be one in so many different ways other than in Christ. It's only Christ that brought us together through his death and resurrection. People try to grasp at it in so many different ways. And we have the the critical race theory that has become somehow a thing. And we shouldn't recognize the differences, truly. 
Well, no, now you can recognize it, but it has to be in a certain way only. This was one race, one tongue, one purpose, and it wasn't good. Here we are today, we have many diverse people, even just in this room, praise God, we can come together because we love Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we may be one as he prayed for us. But they were able to accomplish much because uniformity will bring great worldly success. But we need to remember we don't need world, worldly success. We don't want worldly success. Even though we want it, right? When we face it, we're like, yeah, I want that. I want a higher paying job. I want a nicer car, a nicer house, whatever. Fill in all the blanks. I want to go on a nice vacation or I want to get all the things for Christmas or whatever it might be. We like the worldly success, and, and the reality is, guys, we don't need it, and we shouldn't strive after it, because then we get caught up in living this life that's like, you know what? Yeah, let's just, let's just all buy into it. If we all just buy into it, then everybody succeeds, right? Isn't that the idea? Isn't that what we're being sold these days? Man has great potential on their own, but with the wrong motive, it's great destructive potential. And they had the wrong motive. It was all about them. It was let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city for ourselves. Let us put ourselves on the map. Verse seven. Now God says it, come. Let us go down. God uses their own language. He uses their own terminology. As they're saying, come, come, let us do this. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do all these things in our name, in our power, in our might, that we might be glorified, that everybody would know who we are, the Babylonians. Doesn't work out very well, does it? But God says, come, let us. God using their language, their terminology, and making a reference to his fullness in the midst of their desire at the fullness of God. To replace the name of God, to replace the fullness of God. And God references his fullness as he says, let us. This is a gentle reference at the Trinity. The fullness of God. And he says, come, let us. They think they could come together. They think they know what unity is. Let's show them what triunity is. Right? Let's show them, come, let us do what needs to be done. And so, he confuses their language, it says. Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So first, he confuses their language. Language or speech, in the first place, can only have come from God. And now they used it against God. Much like the beating of our heart or the breath in our lungs, it's, these are involuntary things. And so language, where would they learn? Where did Adam and Eve learn to speak? They were given speech. They were given language. And so therefore they passed that on. But now, of course, the mix-up of languages also came from God. You know, I don't know about you guys, but in the English language, I find it hard to understand each other sometimes, right? Within my marriage, between Man and woman, I find it hard to understand each other sometimes, 
right? We have miscommunications all the time in the same language. Now that gives you an idea of what this society had looked like that they had created because they were able to do incredible earthly things. So when it, that's what I mean when it's talking about this oneness that they had. It was a brainwashed society of oneness accomplishing one goal together. It wasn't a good goal though. And so now as God comes and he's saying, look, let's just confuse that. And now here we could admit that in, in the same language it's confusing. So it's hard to understand even within this. Now if you're gonna try to stop something massive from happening, something like the tower, what do you do? You take out the communication. Right, I mean, this is like a war tactic here, isn't it? God started it. Everything comes from God, guys. I mean, we have all military forces are like, all right, how are we gonna win this battle? Take out their communication. God did it first. (laughs) Hey, how are we gonna stop this from happening? Let's just make them all speak different languages and they will be totally lost. The beginning of confusion is broken communication. I've been on countless foreign missions trips and the hardest part, whenever we go, we go to maybe it's a Spanish-speaking country or I'll, I'll use Haiti as an example because not many people speak Creole. And it's very difficult to speak Creole. So you show up in Haiti and you know like three words in Haiti. Jay-Z, Remyo, Jesus loves you, right? I probably said it really bad too. But it works, you know? Um, and I think I, I learned like a song in Creole. I don't know what all of it means. I kind of do, but we learned a song, right? And so we show up and we're like, hey, who's gonna be our translator? Because none of us can speak Creole. So what do we do? We find ways of communication, but things get lost all the time. I was teaching uh, at the Bible school there in Haiti and I was like, I've got this great idea. I'm gonna do like some team building exercise with them right? There's like 10 students and I'm teaching a Bible class and I'm like, let's do this little activity. And they're just like looking at me like, what are you talking about? You know, and like, this was awesome when I did this activity with the youth group in 2007, you know, with a bunch of American kids. So why wouldn't it be awesome with, uh, with a bunch of Haitians? It doesn't translate, and I can't translate, and I'm trying to explain. I'm like, no, you can't do that. They're like, whatever, man. <laughs> They're like, we're done. We're just going to sit down. So obviously, the communication is the key. Take out the communication. That's exactly what God did. In verse 8, then, what does he do beyond taking out the communication so that they may not understand one another's speech? So the Lord scattered them abroad. From there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. They got shut down. Not only did he take out their communication, but then he scattered them, by which means we don't exactly know. Was it just that God scattered them, was like, hey, this is over, boom, and they're all just dispersed entirely in random places? That's all we know. This is what he did. He scattered them throughout. But this is his mercy. Because God didn't wipe it out. God didn't destroy the people. He was merciful. They had made every attempt to take the place of God. That is a dangerous place to be. Dangerous things to do. And in all of their attempts to take the place of God, he didn't just wipe them off the earth. But he was merciful. And he scattered them because he had a plan, a perfect plan. Their own power would prove to be self-destructive. So God diversified and scattered them. He did exactly what he wanted to happen in the first place. 
He fulfilled his plan to disperse because he is sovereign. All over the world so that they had to start over. They didn't have this oneness anymore. They didn't have this whole society perfectly working together toward one goal, which was self-glorification. They had to start over. It was a new society altogether. But God, in this plan, listen, they needed to be scattered so that he could bring them back together in true unity. This is what Jesus prays for. And listen to this, what happens, guys, amazing, after the resurrection. Acts chapter two, you don't have to turn there, but we know the story. In Acts chapter two, when Jesus had promised them the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit falls in the upper room. And what happens? They all start speaking in other tongues that were not their own. And then go out from the upper room speaking these tongues so what? People would hear the gospel. So God used it. God scattered them so that Jesus would bring them together and they would hear the gospel in those tongues in perfect unity, to represent that's what unity is. That's what unity is for. And that's what God's plan was. Be scattered, go make disciples. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That they would go, the disciples would go out and make disciples. And even then, God uses persecution in the book of Acts, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, to then disperse the church, to spread the church all throughout so that more churches were happening after the resurrection. That's the key. But God used the speaking of many tongues to preach the gospel. Therefore, the name is called Babel, verse nine, because the Lord confused their language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. But he didn't do it without a plan of bringing them back together. Just like when Adam and Eve sinned and, and, and disobeyed God, he didn't, cast them out of the garden without a plan of bringing them back to perfection through Jesus Christ. He didn't scatter all the people out of Babylon, out of, from, this, from Babel beyond to just leave them alone, but so he could bring them back through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, we're gonna continue, we're gonna read through 26 now. Lots of fun names. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxed. Two years after the flood, after he begot Arphaxed, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxed lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphax lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. 
This is the genealogy of, of Shem, which that traces us back to Seth. And now we're going to see why are we reading all this? Well, because there's a lineage that's very important throughout the Bible. And that is the lineage of Christ. The lineage of Christ that we have been saying comes from the line of Seth, which then goes through Noah, through Shem. Now we're going to get to see as this lineage continues, verse 26, now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, this is an important guy in the Bible, if you didn't know. Abram becomes Abraham, if you did not know that. And there's so much focus here as we continue, and I'm gonna read the rest of the chapter on now, not just from here, we start learning about Abram here in chapter 11, and we'll continue on through into chapter 27. So much of this, uh, the book of Genesis is about Abraham for good reason. And so, verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. We know that name. We'll hear more about it later on in the, cha- in the, in the book. And Haran died before his father Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So there's, of course, a focus here on Abram's family because Abram is perhaps the most famous character in the Old Testament. There's so many things in the Old and New Testament that point back to Abraham. Abraham known to be the father of faith. Abraham, who, uh, who God does great things in his life, we know Abraham is then in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. Almost a third of the book of Genesis is about Abraham. We will focus, as I said, from here until chapter 27 on the life of Abraham. Very much so, Abraham is a hinge of faith in the Old Testament. And what's, what we've seen take place here is, is wickedness in chapter 11. We see this nation of people in Babel who are completely wicked and trying to take matters into their own hands, taking the place of God. And this is the foundation even of Abraham. This is where he descended from, is from these people. But God did something along the way. It's important to note here in verse 30 that it just simply says, but Sarai was barren and had no child. This would potentially be problematic in our understanding that, of course, the lineage of Christ comes through Abraham. And then God, of course, gives a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And and so then we'll get to see further and further in the life of Abraham how he takes matters into his own hands. But God had a different plan And this is what God does. There's a lot of course correcting that goes on throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament. People oftentimes try to take matters into their own hands, create counterfeit versions of what God is trying to do. It's exactly what Abraham will do in taking his maidservant, Hagar, and having a child with her is trying to create a counterfeit version of God's perfect promise. That's what we see happening in chapter 11. Why would Abraham do things like this? Well, this is the influence of Abraham's lineage. But God does amazing things throughout the life of Abraham. 
as God speaks to him, calls him to faith, challenges him in faith time and time and time again to where he becomes the father of faith on which so much faith goes back to. So many beliefs and even religious beliefs that people get caught up in, it goes back to Abraham. It says that he came from Ur of the Chaldeans. This was Babylon. This was the Babylonian influence throughout all of the land. And Abram came from a family of idol worshipers. And somehow along the way, God moved. Closing with this, in Joshua chapter 24, verse two and three, it says this. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. Oh no, not the other side of the river, right? That's not the promised land. On the other side of the river, that's where Abraham came from is what Joshua is telling them. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. That's what God did. And we're gonna get to learn all about it, chapters 12 through 26, what God did in Abraham. God says, then I took your father Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I took him out. from the other side, led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. As God promised, even though Abraham at times forgot the promise, God promised, he multiplied his descendants and he gave him Isaac. And through Isaac would come Jesus. We see a people here, guys, through this chapter, people forsaking God's promise and rebelling against him. God course corrects. He course corrects here throughout dispersion and not without a plan. And the plan was always redemption. From the beginning, the plan was redemption. The plan was still redemption here in chapter 11. The plan will be redemption throughout the whole Bible and the plan is redemption for all eternity. Jesus. God has grace and, and we look at this story, we can see, man, there's such wickedness, but God brought Abraham out of it. He took him out of it, and he worked in his life, and he showed grace, and redeemed even this lineage. God's grace in calling Abraham and working in and through him. Let's pray.